You're listening to the Kurdistan in America podcast, the official podcast of the Kurdistan Regional Government representation in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Dulovan Barwari. This episode features an interview with Sam Brownback, the ambassador at large for international religious freedom. Ambassador Brownback served as the governor of Kansas from 2011 to 2018. And prior to that, he served in Congress representing Kansas as a U.S. Senator from 1996 to 2011 and U.S. Representative from 1995 to 1996. Before his public service, he was an attorney in Kansas and taught agricultural law at Kansas State University. The discussion is centered around the notion of religious freedom and its status in the Kurdistan region and the rest of Iraq. But before the interview, here is the latest news updates on the Kurdistan region. Let's begin with the KRG Baghdad relations. Early in October, the Iraqi government and the KRG reached a historic agreement for normalizing the situation in Sinjar. Sinjar, or Shingal in Kurdish, has been a highly contentious place where competing armed groups have been active. The agreement involves understandings on security, civil administration, reconstruction, and the return of more than 220,000 Yazidi IDPs that are currently living in the Kurdistan region. According to the agreement, all armed groups are required to withdraw from the area, a local administration shall be restored, and a new mayor will be appointed. I will now pivot to the recent developments in the Kurdistan region. On October 5th, the Kurdistan region took another evolutionary democratic step. For the first time since the inception of the Kurdistan regional government, the KRG Prime Minister asked for an open and nationally televised parliament session to deliver a comprehensive report. In the parliament session, Prime Minister Masoud Barzani and his deputy, Qobat Talabani, engaged with members of parliament for 10 hours, as 98 out of the 102 present asked 465 questions. The event illuminates that the Kurdistan region is indeed making reforms and increasing transparency and accountability. Also, Barzani and Talabani updated the lawmakers on the government's ambitious reform agenda and the ongoing dialogue with Baghdad over constitutional disputes. They affirmed their cabinet remains committed to accountability and that officials will continue to appear before parliament in the exercise of their duties. Turning to the economy, as I discussed in previous episodes, diversifying and digitizing the economy is one of the main focuses of this administration. Early in May, the KRG announced over a thousand investment projects in various sectors across the Kurdistan region. Earlier this month, KRG's Board of Investment decided to establish three new investment directorates to supervise these projects and increase investment opportunities as well as reduce routines on bureaucracy. According to Muhammad Shukri, the head of the investment board, the plan includes infrastructure projects such as highways, dams, and railways. Additionally, a draft bill for developing mineral resources has been submitted to the Council of Ministers. Let's turn to the security and humanitarian side. The latest humanitarian data released by the KRG Joint Crisis Coordination Center indicates that more than 990,000 displaced people are currently living in the Kurdistan region. 260,000 are Syrian refugees from Rojava, and about 737,000 are IDPs, of which more than 220,000 are Yezidis and nearly 52,000 are Christian. Also, in September alone, about 853 IDPs and refugees arrived to the Kurdistan region, and about 5,560 IDPs and refugees returned to their places of origin. Turning to the KRG activities in the U.S., the KRG representative, Bayan Abdurrahman, continues our outreach in Washington. This month, she held meetings with Eric Olson, Director for Iraq at National Security Council, and David Copley at the State Department. 
Ms. Abdurrahman also spoke at a virtual conference hosted by Zoran University, a webinar hosted by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and moderated a discussion between Kurdish Peshmerga commander General Sirwan Barzani and French philosopher and author Bernard Henry Levy, which was hosted by Concordia and Justice for Kurds. The discussion highlighted the courage and bravery of the Peshmerga forces battling ISIS without adequate weapons. Finally, we have another exciting update on culture. Kurdish pop singer Dashni Murad is featured in a new song from the British group Sweat, a London-based futuristic pop group that mixes electronic dance music and militant melodies. Dashni is a popular singer, songwriter, humanitarian, and women's rights advocate. And now, the interview with Ambassador Brownback. Ambassador Brownback, welcome to the show. Well, first, uh, let me thank you for allowing me to uh, be a part of this podcast and to um, uh, be on this. Uh, and, it, and it's a delight to be able to discuss uh, these topics with you. It's my pleasure and an honor to have you. The focus of our discussion will be about religious freedom. According to the Pew Research Center, global restrictions on religion have been on the rise. Government restrictions on religion have increased in the following four areas. Favoritism of religious groups, general laws and policies restricting religious freedom, harassment of religious groups, and limits on religious activity. Your Excellency, you are the U.S. Ambassador at Large for International Religious Freedom, and your office at the State Department is focused on promoting religious freedom as a core objective of U.S. foreign policy. Could you kindly elaborate on your efforts? What are your goals and what has been achieved? Our focus is to get uh, and to have religious freedom for everybody, everywhere, all the time. Uh, and as you point out, this is a, a human right that's been in decline the last uh, decade, uh, really, as uh, just more and more restrictions on uh, religious freedom have moved forward around the world. What you've seen is the Trump administration uh, put a special emphasis on religious freedom uh, and to really uh, push for this fundamental human right. It's our belief that this is one of those basic foundational human rights that if you get it right, other human rights start to flourish. If you get it wrong, other human rights decline. And so we've put a special emphasis uh, on this. And uh, we've hosted two ministerials uh, where we've invited foreign ministers from around the world to come to Washington to discuss religious freedom uh, and the need for it and what can be done. We've emphasized more than uh, kind of the name and shame approach that had been a lot of our past efforts, which is to say we were naming the most egregious perpetrators and trying to shame them into doing something, to pointing out the positive aspects of religious freedom, that uh, if you embrace religious freedom, uh, there'll be a, a, a more uh, stable environment uh, in your country. There'll be less conflict uh, and there'll be more economic growth. Uh, and we also have been pointing out more recently that this is one of the key avenues forward towards peace uh, is not to have uh, religious groups fighting either for their right uh, or fighting each other. And, um, and we've seen now peace agreements move forward uh, in uh, Sudan uh, and between uh, the UAE and Israel and Bahrain, the uh, recognition there of Israel uh, built around this fundamental notion of religious freedom uh, and protecting religious minorities. 
So we've got a lot of efforts going on in this space. Uh, we're seeing fruit. Uh, Sudan has really moved aggressively itself uh, towards more religious freedom. Uzbekistan has done uh, similarly. We're seeing a much uh, improved uh, global uh, interest in religious freedom. During this pandemic, we've seen a number of religious uh, prisoners, prisoners of conscience, released uh, from prisons uh, to um, uh, because trying uh, to be helpful that they wouldn't be subject to more of the uh, coronavirus infections in prison. And a number of them have been released, and we hope they'll stay out of jail. We really hope that nobody is arrested around the world uh, simply for what they believe in. And um, uh, these efforts have, are bearing some fruit. We just saw Eritrea uh, released another 66 uh, Pentecostal Christians from jail that had been sentenced for 10 to 12 years, uh, just released uh, this past week. So we're, um, we're optimistic uh, that we're seeing more and more interest in this field and action taking place, but we got a long ways to go. On the same note, Mr. Ambassador, when you delivered your speech at the U.S. Embassy to the Holy See Symposium at the Vatican in September, you stated that the key to peace and many of the conflicts around the world today is the protection of religious freedom. I couldn't agree more. But unfortunately, the Middle East is a region rampant with religious intolerance imposed by both governments and by terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda and ISIS. However, some of the Middle Eastern governments that restrict religious freedom and are accused of sponsoring Islamic extremist groups are U.S. allies. What is the Office of International Religious Freedom doing to address this problem? And how do you balance U.S. geopolitical imperatives with the principles of religious freedom? Well, promoting religious freedom is a core component of U.S. foreign policy, uh, particularly during the uh, Trump administration. But the, the position I'm in goes back 20 years and was statutorily established by the Congress. Uh, so the Congress has been deeply interested in this bipartisan basis to make religious freedom uh, a core component of uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policy. And I agree. Uh, in the Middle East, we've got uh, way too much religious intolerance. The Christian population in the Middle East has virtually been driven out uh, and uh, only exist really in a, in a few areas. The Kurdish region is one where there's a substantial uh, religious diversity. Uh, Lebanon still, although uh, it's under pressure, and, and Egypt. Um, so we've, really, uh, we've seen the effects of the terrorist that seek to create this monochromatic uh, view in their area that only one religion uh, can exist. Uh, and uh, it's, um, it's, it's one that, that they uh, promote. So we've got to push back on that. And we do push back on that. And we push our allies uh, on this. Fortunately, uh, we're really starting to see some major changes taking place in the, uh, in the Middle East. I noted the peace agreement between the uh, uh, UAE uh, uh, and diplomatic recognition between UAE and soon Bahrain and Israel. Uh, and this was built around the, what was called the Abrahamic Accords, uh, that these are monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, uh, all uh, uh, seeing their uh, origination uh, in Abraham. And I, I think this is a fundamental shift that you're seeing that now we're starting to see these, uh, these three faiths 
uh, come together around this idea of a common heritage from Abraham, and we can build off of that instead of destroy each other off of that. Now let's turn to the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Mr. Ambassador, I believe you haven't visited Kurdistan yet, but if you met, you've met KRG officials and regularly meet with representatives of religious communities from the Kurdistan region. How would you assess the status of religious freedom in the Kurdistan region? And or how does Kurdistan compare with other areas of the Middle East? Well, first I have been uh, to the uh, Kurdish region. Uh, I was there in 2018 with, uh, with then U.S. aid administrator Mark Green. It was a delegation that he led that I was there. Uh, and I've applauded for years now the Kurdish region uh, and its effort to promote respect for uh, various religious adherents uh, in that region. And you've been an island uh, in that uh, region of uh, uh, religious freedom. And it's attracted then people, uh, particularly uh, Yazidis, Christians, uh, members of other minority groups that uh, survived the ISIS genocide. Uh, Many have fled to the Kurdish region because they could get protection there. Uh, we really appreciate uh, open communications that uh, we've had with the KRG, uh, including with the Ministry of uh, Endowment, Religious Affairs, uh, and I look forward to that continued um, cooperation. But uh, Kurdistan region has been, uh, really has saved a lot of lives by what they have uh, done in being open to religious minorities and protective of religious minorities and supportive of religious freedom by protecting these uh, religious minorities. It's deeply appreciated and it's saved lives. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. On the same note, as you mentioned, the Kurdistan region has been a safe haven for religious minorities, especially after ISIS overran a third of Iraq. And today, the vast majority of Christians and Yazidis in Iraq are living, have taken refuge in the Kurdistan region. And the KRG Ministry of Endowment and Religious Affairs has representatives of eight religions. But there are certain things that are beyond our, our control or KRG's control. A great example is the situation in Sinjar and Nineveh Plains. And because of security and economic situation, it has prevented the Christians and both the Yazidis from returning to their homes. That is a significant problem because the population of the Christians has dwindled from 1.4 million in 2003, that was the estimate, to less than 200,000 today. And many, a significant number of Yazidis have also left the country. And, and the remaining majority, 220,000 or so from Sinjar region, are displaced in Kurdistan today. And our concern at the KRG is that the Christian community and the Yazidi community would disappear one day from Iraq. And the KRG wants to prevent that. What can the U.S. government do to help for the Yazidis and Christians to return to their homes? Well, it's something we've been deeply concerned about, particularly in this administration. In previous times, the basic answer has been just to allow these religious minorities to emigrate uh, to Europe, to Canada, to the United States. And that was our answer rather than trying to protect them uh, in place. But this administration uh, has done a different approach and said that these communities need to be able to stay in their home region, that it does not benefit the Middle East, uh, that their religious uh, minorities are driven out. It hurts the Middle East. 
it hurts its economic growth, it hurts its diversity, uh, and I, I think it, it hurts its connections to the rest of the world. So this administration has provided more than $480 million in assistance, um, and this was a, by an effort done by Vice President uh, Pence to um, really push the restoration of these uh, religious and ethnic communities in Iraq, particularly the Yazidis and the Christians in the Nineveh Plains uh, and in Sinjar. This assistance has been in a wide variety of activities. Um, it's been to rebuild uh, power facilities, uh, healthcare facilities, education infrastructure. Uh, it's been on um, uh, social support, job training. And um, you know, we're proud of these efforts, uh, but there's a fundamental problem that remains, and that's the insecurity for religious minorities still in this region, that while today uh, it may be okay, uh, it's just a concern that tomorrow the next iteration of an ISIS type of group would come forward and uh, again persecute these regions. And that's where the Iraqi government has to step up, uh, like the the uh, Kurdish uh, regional government and authority has to protect these religious minority communities. If they don't have protection, they will not return. They, they will not rebuild. Uh, and they'll be permanently uh, leaving the area. And we really need them to stay. This needs to be the new model in these uh, religious conflict zones, uh, whether it's um, the Kurdish region, whether it's in northern Iraq, whether it's other places in the Middle East, whether it's Lebanon, uh, uh, whether uh, it's the, the Rohingya being pushed out of Burma uh, or the uh, Uyghurs uh, being put in detention facilities in China uh, or the Tibetan Buddhists being run out of, of uh, the Tibetan uh, region. These minority groups need to be protected and they need to be allowed to stay, and this needs to be a matter of urgent international concern. Mr. Ambassador, my personal view is that part of it might be the, the way the government of Iraq is structured. And some of the Christians and Yazidi groups, both in the U.S. and Iraq, have been advocating for decentralization. With that in mind, if I'm not mistaken, as a member of Congress, you were one of the key advocates of what came to be known as the Biden plan which advocated decentralization and federalism for all of Iraq. What is your view today? you think that model will work for the Christians and Yazidis in Nain of Plains and Sinjar and the rest of Iraq? Well, I, I certainly feel like you're going to have to give uh, some of these religious minorities more stake uh, in their local government uh, entity and protection. The United States is in favor of a united and federal Iraq that includes all of its diverse communities. Uh, this decentralization and empowering local communities, I, I think, are valuable tools. The U.S. government thinks they're valuable tools in this context. Uh, we do encourage the Iraqi government to protect democratic process, to implement political and economic reforms, to fight corruption and improve the delivery of basic services and amongst these, the core key piece of it is security to all its citizens. Absolutely. Now, another institution that is related to your office is the International Religious Freedom Roundtable, which you chair. And I've attended several of these, many of these meetings, actually. Uh, at the time, I was representing the Barzani Charity Foundation. 
And from my understanding, and the KRG has been also involved in this KRG U.S. representation, the plan, there are plans to create a roundtable, Kurdistan roundtable. Could you share with us the status of that uh, roundtable? Uh, there have been uh, uh, numerous discussions about getting this going. And to my knowledge, there's a number of people that have agreed to be a part of it. Uh, it's supported by uh, the KRG. And uh, uh, it would have been launched to date uh, already, uh, but for the COVID crisis, it's just uh, really halted so many uh, in-person meetings. I think really once the world starts to open back up after the COVID crisis, uh, you'll see this, uh, this group uh, form, have its uh, meetings and, and become a very effective force and, and become a model really uh, in that region of the world that you can have religious minorities uh, and religious majorities uh, that get together and protect each other's common uh, human right to religious freedom. So it's, it's, it's really my hope uh, that, you, that this model is something that people can see and say, if we want peace in our region and if we want to be able to grow and long-term stability, this is a fundamental we must do. We must protect these religious minorities from their persecution. And if we do, they'll stay, they'll grow, they'll help us prosper uh, and be a better country. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. We have spoken about religious freedom a great deal now, but haven't addressed what faith means to you, Mr. Ambassador. Please, can you share with us how your personal faith has shaped your life and your work? Well, it's, uh, it's fundamental to me. I, uh, I'm a follower of Jesus. I follow his teachings. Um, it, um, uh, impacts how I uh, view and look at the world and look at others. Uh, it, it also is a really a powering, uh, empowering and, and powering uh, thing for me in this work I'm in now. I believe that, um, you know, that, that God granted us this right to religious freedom, uh, that he is he, he, he's so vested in this notion of um, uh, free will uh, that he gives us uh, free will to choose or not to choose him. And that this is something that no government has the right to interfere with. Uh, this is this is something of my dignity as a human individual. So these foundational beliefs have helped shape my uh, interest and in, and in, uh, power in this. Plus, uh, I just really love the chance to be able to help other people uh, when they're uh, persecuted and harmed around the world, whether they're of my same faith beliefs or not. Uh, if they're a human being and they're being persecuted simply for what they believe in, it just rubs me raw. Uh, it it really um, uh, is something that is very troubling uh, to me, and I I think it should be troubling to all of us, uh, just because it's it's so against the dignity of the human uh, person, and that's it is part of what my beliefs are, and it's part of what I think a loving God would have us do for each other is to stand up for each other's rights. Absolutely. Now, at the end of every interview, we ask our guests the same three questions. The first question is, when was the first time you heard about Kurdistan? You know, I think it was right after I got into the U.S. Senate and I was uh, heading up the Middle East subcommittee uh, and uh, I started talking with one of my staff members about traveling to the Kurdish region. Now, this was a 
time period when uh, Saddam Hussein was still in control in Baghdad, Baghdad, but the Kurdish region was under the Kurdish control uh, and was safe and secure. And one of the staff members said, you should travel to the Kurdish region. And I was going, well, wait a minute, that's in Iraq and uh, they're, they're not going to allow that. I said, no, the Kurdish region is autonomous, has been running itself very uh, well and effective for uh, some period of time. You could do that. And I think that was when I first um, heard about uh, the Kurdish region. The second question, what is the word or phrase that sums up Kurdistan for you? A, a stable um, island of um, really dignity uh, in an area that has known much war would be the the phrase that would come to my mind because the, the Kurdish region has been uh, stable. It's provided for individual uh, liberties uh, for people for decades now in a region that hasn't known individual liberty and hasn't known, um, hasn't known peace uh, for, a, for a number of years. But you're an island that knows uh, peace and stability and human dignity and a, and a difficult sea. Finally, what is a word or phrase that sums up America for you? Yeah, probably freedom. Um, also like the, the thought of just individual human dignity. Uh, and and that, you've got to unpack human dignity. Uh, some human dignity involves the freedom for the individual, but it also involves that individual conducting themselves. Uh, in a dignified fashion towards others, that they respect uh, other individuals, whether they agree with them or not, uh, that they, uh, they treat them as dignified individuals. So it's not just an individual right concept, it's an individual responsibility concept. Uh, and, and to me, this is a country that really tries to maximize that, that uh, right and responsibility of the individual. Thank you very much. Ambassador Brownback. My pleasure. God bless you all and uh, all the best. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you.